Lord, thank you so much for your grace to us, your kindness to us. We thank you for strengthening us. We thank you, Lord, for the laughter and just the conversation here and the fellowship and the friendship, Lord. We pray that that would continue to blossom and flourish, just continue to get stronger and stronger as the days go by. And we pray, Lord, that you do with us now as we jump into Psalm 25, as we work our way through it, we ask you to guide us. May our hearts, when we walk out of here, may our hearts, as the psalm begins, May our souls be lifted up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Psalm 25. So there's copies around if you don't have a Bible. If your Bible's print's too small and you need a larger print, I did 16 font on that. Uh, I love Psalm 25. I committed it years ago to memory in the New King James Version. Um... It's a delightful psalm. So here's how it goes. Of David, to you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Yahweh, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. By the way, that is a common phrase I use in my prayers. Just say it. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. Good and upright is Yahweh, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of Yahweh are steadfast love and faithfulness for, for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears Yahweh? Him will he instruct in the way that he, cho he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of Yahweh is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward Yahweh, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me, and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all of his troubles. Now the Psalm 25, did anybody, just out of curiosity, did anybody see any uh, uh, themes that run through in reference to repeats maybe, possibly... No right answer, no wrong answers. Yes, there is quite a bit. Yeah, remember, remember comes up several times. Anybody see anything that connects maybe to Psalm 24 and potentially leans towards Psalm 26? Maybe it's a stretch this early in the morning, but... Okay, well, we'll see if there's any in here. So let's go ahead and move on. <laughs> I get it. 
We had presbytery all day yesterday, and so I'm about 86% right now. And so I'm calling this series, or this psalm, Lifted, and you can see that from the very beginning. This psalm is so impactful to me. Um, I actually named my second book, which is a book of confessions of prayers. I titled it from that first line, To You I Lift Up My Soul. Every time we do the Sursum Corda, that's the Latin phrase for it. Every time we do the Sursum Corda in the service, okay? Lift up your souls. We lift them up to the Lord. All right? You are fulfilling Scripture. You are actually imbibing in Psalm 25 and others. By the way, John Calvin said, never let a Protestant church drop the Sursum Corda. I thought that was always intriguing. And so in his whole liturgy, he actually has it in there. Lift up your soul. We lift them up to the Lord. And so that's how I titled the book off that first verse. Um, I love this. This is a friend of mine, Chris Hutchinson, um, whose uh, book on humility is an excellent book. And he said this on Twitter this, just this last week. I said, I'm going to have to put this out there for our class. Reading slowly through the Psalms, so far, almost everyone involves conflict with other humans and the stress that causes. It's almost like David's journaling for his own mental health and growth in grace became scripture. Oh, wait. I just thought it was funny. Right? And so as you read through the Psalms, you'll, he notice he's, say, he's pointing out, you'll notice a lot of conflict. Even in this Psalm, there's a lot of conflict. And as David is dealing with that, God in his grace makes it scripture so that we, as Calvin would say, God knows how we speak in times like this, and so he gives us the words. Okay? So Psalm 25 is definitely that kind of thing. All right, so lifted, uh, here's my, I'm breaking it down to three parts. The reliable God, verse 1 through 7, good God, verses 8 through 15, and caring God, verses 16 through 22. You could probably drop it, break it down even more. I did a sermon on this back in 2015 here. I think I had eight points. So you can break it out to lots of points. There's just lots of different themes. I'm just trying to put them in broader categories. So just remember the Hebrew alphabet, Okay. It has an order, says Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, Tet, Tet, Yod, etc. And it goes like that. And the reason why I say that, because Psalm 25 is an acrostic. In the Hebrew, it is an acrostic. It's not a tight acrostic. There's actually four of the Hebrew letters that are missing. Okay, so Psalm 25 is an acrostic uh, mostly. And it skips about four Hebrew letters as it moves along. So the, the acrostic actually begins in verse 2. So I found this really interesting that the first line, uh, right after it says, of David, then it says, to you all look at my soul. That's not part of the acrostic. And the last verse is not part of the acrostic when it says, um, redeem Israel, O Lord, out of all their troubles. Okay? Uh, those two parts are not. And so I, there's something significant about those two lines. They're not part of the acrostic, so they're almost like uh, bookends. This is what David intended. So maybe the first part is the title of the psalm. To you I look at my soul. So the whole psalm is about that. And his whole aim in this psalm is to get to that last verse. Redeem Israel, O Lord, O God, out of all of his troubles. Okay? So it's possibly literarily what it is. So an acrostic. Here's an example of an acrostic. A Mother's Day poem. Marvelously overflowing with love and touching the heart of everyone he reaches mother, right? Ah, oh, yes, please, yes. But the way that Psalm 25 works out is it runs basically right along the Hebrew alphabet. The first letter of each verse begins 
with the alphabet in order except for the four letters that it drops. I think it's four letters that I counted that it dropped. Okay, so the first, ver the first word uh, is an Aleph word starting in verse 2, and then it just keeps going right down through the Hebrew alphabet. Now, why would that be important to know? Why might it be helpful if you're looking at this psalm and you're only seeing the translation? Yeah, if you were reading in Hebrew, it would help you to memorize it. Exactly. So Psalm 119 is a good example of that, where it's eight verses that follow that across it right through the Hebrew alphabet. So it's meant for memorization. Okay, that's a good reason. Okay, but in your English translation, why would it be important to just kind of know that there's this acrostic background in the Hebrew? Why might that help a little bit as you're reading? That's a good answer. Hmm. Yes. That's a good answer. I'm sorry? Yeah, it does, but there's, yeah, there's nothing that tells us when specifically. That's good. That's good. As long as it's not plastic straws. It's got to be paper straws. Yeah, Bible trivia. So you can pass, you can win the Bible trivia game. No, it's because it'll be a little jerky. Have you ever done an acrostic and try to make the whole thing flow? It's kind of hard to do sometimes. It gets a little jerky. And so Psalm 25 feels a little jerky because he's actually trying to stick with the letter as he works through it. The other side of it, the reason why it helps you is this, is that it's a very passionate psalm, okay? In America, for whatever reason, we think that passionate means spontaneity. It takes a lot of brain energy to follow an acrostic. I hope you're picking up what I'm saying. His passion is actually uh, the, the, the pain, the grief, the, what he's asking for and all that. He has thought about a lot. It takes a lot of work. If you don't know this, it takes a lot of work for me to put those sermons together where I have those S words, you know, for each point or something. It takes a lot of work and a lot of thinking. And so that's, this whole psalm is not spontaneous. It is well thought out in that regard. So when he's writing about these things, He's thought about it, and he's starting to stick with the olive word, and the gimel word, and then the dalit word, and so forth to begin them. It's just one of those things you look at an acrostic. Yes? Not any more than English. So there's only a few psalms that are acrostic. Yeah. Yeah, this one, 119. There's a two, two or three others that I think are, so yeah. But I just want to point that out to you. That's the structure of the psalm. It's an acrostic going through the Hebrew alphabet. So let's talk about reliable God, verses 1 through 7. I tried to emphasize how often the word shame comes up, okay? And you see it pretty pronouncedly in these first seven verses, specifically verses 1 through 3, okay? So it shows up in verse 2 once, shows up in 3, verse 3 twice. It shows up as shame and a shame, and then it shows up again in verse 20. Shame is a big theme in Psalm 25. That doesn't necessarily resonate with us as Westerners because we uh, theoretically don't live in a shame-honor culture. Now, if you were Asian, this would just ring your bells. For example, if you were Turkish, this would ring your bells. But if you lived in a rural town in, 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 in America, this would ring your bells. Rural towns are huge on shame-honor. Shame is everything. I mean, it, it, you, you, that's, how, that's how people dominate in small towns, for example, is they throw shame out there. They shame you in public, and you shut down because everybody now, feel, it feels like everybody's against you. 
okay? And so it's really interesting that we do have a shame-honor culture. It's just not quite the same as you might see if you were in an Asian culture. So I really appreciate that how often this word shows up and that this is an important theme in the psalm, the sense of shame. Don't let me be ashamed. Let them be ashamed. I love that. Don't let me be ashamed. Let them be ashamed, right? Great prayer. All right. Uh, so shame, supervise. So well, first off, before we get to, to beyond that, anybody else see anything else in verses 1 through 3 that sticks out to you? How does the shame show up in verses 1 through 3? Yeah. 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 Right. Okay. All right. And so then the next part, supervise, verses 4 through 5. Okay. Notice the language, how it's, direct, it's, a, it's, a, it's prayer language, request language, but he's asking God to supervise him. So notice the language, make me, lead me, teach me. Does everybody see that? Okay, so make me to know your paths. That's interesting for a Christian or for a believer to say, make me to know your paths. In other words, I don't always know your paths. I don't always, don't always know the right way to go, what direction to take. Make me to know your paths, teach me your paths, right? Um, and then the, the next part is lead me. And so this is all related. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Okay? Lead me in your faithfulness. Lead me in what's right as you see it because your idea of right, Lord, your, your, your category of right is right. Lead me in that direction. And then there's two four statements. And these are reason statements. These are reasons why he's asking God to supervise him. What are the two reason statements as to why he's asking God to supervise him. Look for the word for. For you what? So he's, you're the God of my salvation. There's one reason. What's the other one? Yeah, for you I wait all day long. I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to you. I'm trusting in you. I'm leaning on you in your direction, right? So you're the God of my salvation for I wait for you. This is why I'm asking you to supervise me. It's a, it's a surrender. He's surrendering to the Lord. I wait for you. You're the God of my salvation. This is why I need you to make the way known to me, your way known to me, stuff like that, okay? So it's a prayer for supervision because God is a reliable God. All this comes back to this theme here, reliable God. And then solace, verses 6 through 7. Somebody mentioned this already, the remembering. Notice how often remember is brought up. It's brought up like three times. Remember me. Don't remember what I used to do. I love that. I just love that. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, but do remember me according to your steadfast love. It's very specific, but there's a solace there. There's a sense of knowing that God remembers us and remembers us in a steadfast love does give us a sense of that solace and comfort, okay? And so, um, remember me for your, uh, according to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O oh Lord, okay? Anybody see anything in there you want to talk about briefly?
Yeah. Yeah. So keep the idea of forgiveness in mind, okay? And watch as we go through how often he asks for forgiveness, okay? Yes. But how often, I don't know about anybody else, how often my youth comes back to haunt me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Well, at this point, yes. All right, so um, so all this grows out of the very first part of verse 2, Oh my God, in you I trust. All of this is asked and rehearsed because of that very first line, In you, O oh God, do I trust. This is a reliable God. Because I can trust Him, I can ask Him to give me guidance to lead me in the way I should go to show me His path. Because I trust Him, I want Him to remember me for good. I want Him to remember me according to his steadfast love and not remember my, the sins of my youth because he's reliable and you oh Lord uh, because, um, sorry oh God oh God oh my God and you I trust okay I mean that's where he he's, all of this is flowing out of that alright so reliable God alright so good God chapter uh, verses 8 and 15 Let me flip my page here. And so, uh, good God. Notice um, we're back to way, way, and paths again. Okay? How often does that come up here in verses 8, 9, 10, and 12? He instructs sinners in. He teaches the humble. Yeah. Verse 12, he will instruct he will, uh, he will, uh, him he will instruct in, in, in the way that he should choose, etc. It just keeps coming back to this path, this trekking language. I'm walking on this path, guide me, right? So now he's saying, these are the truths about God. So God is good. So you'll notice that in verses 8 through 15, I think there's only one request in verses 8 through 15. He's moved from requesting to now just rehearsing the goodness of God, how good God is. He's the one who actually will direct us in the path we go. He's the one who will actually guide and lead and direct. Does that make sense? Okay. And so um, all of the statements, I just said this, all the statements here basically are of how good God is. The only request is verse 11, for your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my guilt, for it is great. The first time he asked, don't remember the sins of my youth, that was the past, and now he's in the present. Okay? So keep that in mind. We're going to come back around to this when we come up to it one more time um, in a minute. Uh, But I find that interesting. So how valuable is that to sit down and actually spend time rehearsing how good God is? I mean, listen to some of this. Good and upright is Yahweh, therefore, because he's good and upright, therefore he instructs the sinners, sinners in the way. I love that language. He instructs sinners in the way. There's hope for all of us. Woohoo! Right? He leads the proud and arrogant. Is that what it says next? He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his ways, emphasizing humility. All scripture emphasizes humility. Even our Lord Jesus says that the one who exalts himself will be humbled, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? You can go all the way through scripture. Humility is a capital virtue that Christians and God's people should always exhibit, okay? And so here's 
Here's the goodness of God for the humble. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. Uh, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. It just keeps on going. And notice so how that happens, how it builds on the goodness of God. Here's the reasons why I can pray this prayer. Because God is this good. This is the kind of God he is. So how valuable would that be to stop when you're praying, you're asking, God, help, God, help, or whatever, for you to stop, maybe even in the middle of your prayers, and say, here's why I'm asking, because here's who you are. that line he does this all the time the problem is is that we don't remember that all the times and oftentimes we think this time is what it's always like right yeah so very good yeah yep absolutely So if you, those of you who read the letter this week, I told the story of my friend Art, who's an alcoholic. We were in the Air Force. Uh, I was at the correctional facility marching all the guys over to see him. He would do their drug and alcohol abuse counseling. He'd been an active alcoholic for most of his Air Force career. And little bitty guy, he was about this, about this tall, smoked like a chimney. But anyways, that was him. Anyways, and so Art was working as he would say, working on his sobriety, working the program, right? He had been sober, uh, uh, not drinking, and other aspects of sobriety for quite a few years. Here he was now helping those or trying to help those who were actually uh, alcohol abusers and, and addicts and so forth. And he and I got, became really good friends, and Art says to me one day, as I said in the letter, he says, you know, most of my problem is I was always telling God, my will be done. And because I couldn't control the outcomes and I couldn't control people, I couldn't control the situations, it made me matter and matter and matter. And I would strike out. He, I, this is more than what's in the letter. I would strike out verbally. I'd strike out physically and still couldn't get my way. And so I began self-medicating, right? So I was actively drinking to ease the pain, I thought, to remove the pain, I thought, right? And it just got worse and worse and made it worse and worse. And I found myself constantly telling God, my will be done, my will be done. It was when he finally said, when he finally, whenever it was, he heard the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, and here's the Lord Jesus. He's saying, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And he said, at that moment, everything shifted for him. And he, and he talked about it, he talked about it as surrender. It was when he finally said, I'm not God, you are. My will's all messy. No, better for me to say, not my will, but yours be done. And the shift for him, and this is his own testimony, the shift for him was huge. And I think that's the same kind of concept that you see going on here as well. 
So looking at verse 10, how would verse 10 potentially be related to chat, uh, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6? All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimony. Um, you can even go on down to um, verse 11, 12, and 13 here um, um, as well. But how would those relate to chapter 24, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6? Remember Psalm 24? That was last week. I know, it was a long time ago. But all that talk in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, who shall stand in this holy place, he who has clean hands, pure heart, etc., and so forth. How do those relate? If you look back at verse 10, for example, does it take you back? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's, there's that connection. There's also, um, along with that, uh, when you get down, uh, he, who is the man that fears the Lord, verse 12, he, he, him he will instruct in the way that he should choose and so forth. It kind of, it actually, it feeds back into that, but it actually shapes it a little bit. This is the one who can ascend the mountain of the Lord. It's the one whom the Lord has instructed, right? The one whom the Lord has guided in that direction in the paths that he should choose, Okay. Uh, and you could go further with that and look at that. I just wanted to bring that up. So, um, how is verse 10 related to verse 14? Notice verse 10 and verse 14. Somebody read verse 10 and somebody else read verse 14. I'm read verse 14. Thank you for all the volunteers. That's awesome. That's good. So notice what's the connection between verse 10 and verse 14. The covenant is, yes, but it's more than just the covenant. But yes, that is it. Obedience to verse 10. Yeah. 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 So notice, yes, he teaches you his covenant. So who's the one? It's the, the obedience is actually part of the grace of God that comes because you wouldn't keep the covenant if he didn't teach you the covenant, if he didn't show you the covenant, if he didn't make the way for you, okay? And so when you're reading the psalm, you have to kind of look at the whole thing, especially those parts that maybe make you a little, make you a little uncomfortable at places, Okay. But that's a great, I mean, that, to me, as I was working through that, I've been working through that for years, that's an extremely important connection to pull together. Okay, yes, it is. The paths of the Lord are steadfast, love, and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimony. Well, how did they find out how to keep His covenant and His testimony? Verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. He makes known to them His covenant. He makes the way open for that. Okay. Yes. 
Yeah. Yes. Yes, and it's got to be, I have to receive from you. you. I need to believe what you're saying, right? So it's interesting. I'm glad you brought it up. It's interesting. We'll talk about this in the sermon, but it, uh, I won't mention the confession of faith itself. But when the confession of Westminster Confession of Faith is talking about what is true faith, one of the shocking aspects, at least for most people, they think it immediately goes to Jesus, but it says believing whatever God has revealed in his word. That's the first part of saving faith. So when we listen to today, when I'll, I'll quote it in the sermon, when we listen to the New City Catechism, when it's talking about what is faith in Jesus, the very first part is believing what God has revealed in his word. Because why would that be important? It's, that, it's the sewing class. I have to trust you, right? I have to receive what you say or I'm going to go do my own thing. And if I go do my own thing, I'm not going to sew what you're, it's not going to look like what you're telling me. Especially if I sew. I just want you to know. Right? 